0: gone through real tragedy, and we do our very, very best to offer real help from a variety of resources from guests that we have on. This is Delilah from ImaginePublicity.com, and I'm sitting in as host this week for Donna Gore, who has had eye surgery, Um, and if all goes well with her recovery, she, she should be back with us next week. My guest today is, is really, really, we've had him on before. He's an investigative journalist and true crime author, John Farrick. And in my opinion, a, a good investigative journalist and a true crime author is a great combination and a valuable asset to justice these days. Um, you know, when we see our judicial system all over the country failing, um, we rely on people like John to pursue the true justice. So I want to welcome John to the show, and I'd like to begin by updating listeners on the subject of your previous book, Dixie's Last Stand. Um, John, can you pre- briefly outline the story and let us know what's happening today with Dixie?
1: Sure, thanks, Delilah, and I'm uh, very uh, uh, happy to be back on your wonderful show. Um, yeah, so uh, so again, it was earlier this summer. Uh, I had uh, I had uh, booked a couple of uh, um, book appearances actually uh, in uh, in Iowa and uh, and they were in the in the home county, uh, which is where Dixie Shanahan's murder case and her trial originated and took place and uh, and, and uh, as I was pr- doing some research and preparing for my uh, presentations there, um, I followed up with the state of Iowa since I knew that Dixie would be up again this summer around June for her annual review for her parole situation. Um, since last year was the first year that she was eligible and she was rejected and um, Dixie was denied again this this summer in june, but there was a there was an interesting twist to it um, The parole board notified her that they were denying her but uh, but they said that they were they were interested in reevaluating her um, situation a few months down the road, provided that she uh you know go through uh um, medical um, um psychologist or some type of psychologist uh you know evaluates her uh through the through the state of Iowa and uh well, can and you,
0: could, yeah. I'm sorry before we go too too much farther do you want to just quickly go over the crime that she was committed to prison for good idea
1: Dick, um Delilah um yeah Dixie Shanahan was convicted of uh of murder of uh, of shooting her husband uh, Scott Shanahan um the crime occurred in uh, August of 2002 and, um, and it, it took about 14 months before the authorities of Shelby County, Iowa um, um, descended on her house and uh, conducted a search warrant and that's where they found what was left of Scott's remains inside the back bedroom. Dixie had, uh, had cordoned off the back bedroom of the house and uh, continued to live um, in the house with her three small children all the while that Scott's body, um, you know, was uh, um, rotting in the back bedroom of the house. So uh, um, the case went to trial. I still I still think,
0: find that really chilling.
1: <laughs> yeah, I room. mean, yeah, if you think about it, and, and, and just the, the longevity of it, too, Delilah, the fact right. that she, you know, it wasn't just one day or two days. So, I mean, we're talking a year and two months. And it would have gone on a lot longer, too, if it wasn't for, You know the sheriff's office uh, exhausting all leads, and the last one of the last things they had not done yet was just go onto the property and search the property for uh, for for uh, for Scott's uh, Scott's body, and that's how they found him. But uh, but yeah, Dixie took the Dixie uh, did not deny that she shot and killed her abusive husband Scott Shanahan, Um, but uh, but when the case went to trial, the uh, the prosecutor uh, Cheryl Thoman. Uh, was able to prove uh beyond a reasonable doubt to the local hometown jury that you know Dixie selected um that uh that the shooting you know was cold-blooded and uh you know and uh warranted a, a murder conviction so Dixie's been in prison oh since uh, for 11 years now in uh, Mitchellville Iowa which is uh home of the Iowa women's uh, prison there And, um, and again, she's had a lot of support and sympathy over the years, Uh, um, you know, people that felt that it was not just for her to receive such a long prison sentence in the state of Iowa. Uh, She was given a a flat 50-year prison sentence just based on Iowa's very strict and rigid um, sentencing laws that they had in place. So the judge at her trial... He really wanted to give her a lesser sentence than fifty years, and he said so. Um, but uh, but the way Iowa's laws were in place, for listeners, uh, um, the judge had no alternative but to give her a flat fifty-year prison sentence. So so her best well, hope and her
0: only—that's po- uh, it's my understanding that she was horribly abused in this relationship and. I'm wondering, did they use any of the battered win- battered woman syndrome defense in her case?
1: Yes, they um, they did. The, I mean, how how well of a job they did with that is is, is pretty questionable, though. Uh, um, they brought in um, oh, um, she was one of the state of Iowa's uh, um, uh, directors as far as for domestic violence and. Um, and and she testified uh, um, in Dixie's behalf, but 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 then the prosecutor kind of made mincemeat out of her because um, she she you know she testified on the stand she had not even met Dixie you know she didn't even go and, and you know and visit her in the jail so the prosecutor was just basically able to convince the jury you know that uh, that this woman was just talking in general in vague generalities and that it wasn't her her, her comments about uh, domestic abuse and violence were very general. Um, and, and on the other side of the coin, too, Delilah, the prosecutor actually brought in um, um, the, one of the female prosecutors for the local county. Um, Susan Christensen was her name. And Susan testified during Dixie's trial and, and, and basically explained, gave a lot of narratives of local women that were like Dixie that had been abused by their husband over several years. And the prosecutor's office was able to help them get out of that relationship um, so it didn't end in murder. And a lot of people felt um, at, in the aftermath of the trial verdict that Susan Christensen, um, the local prosecutor, that her testimony um, kind of helped tip the scales as far as, you know, for for the guilty verdict of murder against Dixie Shanahan. Mm,
0: so Dixie wasn't able to take advantage of some of the resources that were actually in place. And, and we're talking about a teeny tiny little town where everyone knows everyone and their business. And, and to be able to have that level of abuse going on within several homes, is kind of amazing in itself in a, in a town that small.
1: Yeah, that's, that's true. And, uh, I mean, Dixie's best shot was, uh, um, about a year to year and a half before, um, things turned into homicide, but, uh, that's when, um, her husband, Scott was arrested for his third incident of domestic violence against her. Um, she had suffered, uh, um, swollen and bloodied eyes as a result of that beating. Um, the sheriff's office hauled him away. He was facing felony charges. Dixie moved down to the state of Texas from Iowa to live with, uh, one of her sisters and and family down there. And it seemed like she was turning her life around and, and, uh, you know, really about to make a clean break for, for once, once and for all. And after a few months, uh, she, um, she decided she was not going to help the prosecution, uh, uh, convict her husband of felony domestic violence, um, and, uh, and, and the charges get dismissed against Scott, and then Dixie's going to move back from Texas to Iowa and move back into that same home with Scott. And then from, from there on, the abuse intens- um, intensifies, and Dixie's going to take matters into her own hands around sometime around August 30th of uh, 2002, mm-hmm. and that's going to end with Scott's death by gunfire
0: which which happens in a lot of these cases and it's it kind of escalates to the point where it's going to be either you or me but one of us is going down and in this case it was it was the like abusive husband which a lot of people can say yeah justice was served for her but on the other hand it it also shows what happens when when you try to take things into your own hands, it doesn't always work out very well. So, what what's going on with her today? Now, she is very close to getting out on parole. Is that correct? I that's
1: that's kind of my read on things. That uh, that if she if she's had a good record over the last year, and I believe she has. Um, um, I don't have access to you know confidential reports or memos or that kind of stuff, but nonetheless, I don't have any reason to believe that she's had any disciplinary fractions you know over the last year. so that definitely works in her favor and And again, it's my understanding that uh, you know the Iowa Department of corrections is 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 giving you know serious consideration to to releasing her. You know the fact is she's been in in their custody for eleven. Eleven and a half years or it's been eleven and a half years since she was convicted um in april April of two thousand four so she's you know she's been in the state's custody for a long time and coupled with the fact that you know she had been uh, endured a lot of humiliating you know, and disgusting abuse prior to this prior to this um, um fatal shooting of her husband and as most people would correctly assume. Dixie would Dixie would not have killed her husband if if it wasn't for the torment and abuse that she had endured uh you know previous to all this so uh um, those are mitigating factors um you know Right and I understand with, uh,
0: there's really there's really no family members or such on his side that would prevent her from uh from being paroled I I don't think there's anyone to stand up for him is that right Correct.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, There's, uh, Scott came from a very small family and his parents died long, long ago. And, um, um, yeah, they're just, uh, there's, there's really nobody other than, uh, possibly the, you know, the prosecution or even law enforcement. But my understanding from visiting with some of the authorities in Shelby County, including the sheriff, uh, Jean Cavanaugh that uh, was responsible for arresting her. Um, yeah, at this point in time, they're mostly ambivalent, uh, um, you know, about Dixie coming back. They, they, frankly, they don't oppose, uh, if the state of Iowa decides she's going to be turned, you know, they're going to open the gates t- tomorrow and let her out. There would be no office. Op- the sheriff's office in Shelby County, Iowa, um, would, would not be opposed to that, uh, um, if, if that happened, uh, um, and uh, the sheriff knew Dixie pretty well before this had all happened, um, knew Scott as well, and the sheriff told me that he, he fully expects Dixie, if she is released, whenever that is, that she's gonna move back to Defiance, Iowa, and live in that very same house, you know, where she grew up um, with Scott and, uh, and where the shooting happened. Um, Dixie's current husband, who she married around the time of her murder trial, uh, Jeff Duty. He's continued to live in that house um, by himself. I think, um, you know, all this all this while that she's been in prison.
0: That's really kind of bizarro, but you know, to each well, his own. I guess if she can deal well, with and that, and I don't think I could. Right, and and the kind of the
1: one other little bizarro aspect of the case, little nugget too for listeners when I was doing the presentations, I remember I think it was Sheriff Kavanaugh had mentioned to me when, when I was just talking to visiting with him, he had mentioned to me something about Scott's truck and, uh, and I had some time between my two o'clock presentation and my seven o'clock evening presentation. So I drove up to Defiance, uh, Iowa. It's about a 12 mile drive up, uh, highway 59, beautiful, you know, um, two lane highway. And, uh, and, uh, so when I got to Defiance and, uh, you know, drove into town and drove by Dixie's house, I remembered it because I had covered the case back in '03. But, uh, but sure enough, Scott Shanahan's, uh, brown truck is still sitting parked at the, at the front of the driveway, right up by the garage. Uh, and, uh, you know, Scott's been wow. dead for 13 years now. And yet his, his truck is still sitting at the, in the front of the, the driveway. So, uh, um, uh, that just kind of really was a head scratcher and uh, uh, kind of made me shake my head uh, a few times and stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, nonetheless, uh, I don't know what uh, Dixie's planning to do with that. When she gets out, she'll use that as her vehicle, but uh, um, I don't even know if the thing works, but, uh, but nonetheless, uh, yeah, that truck is Scott's old truck is yeah, still yeah. in the driveway. And that was part of the whole well, mystery to begin with. Yeah. Because, uh, because, yeah. Uh, if Scott had turned up missing, you know, prior to the authorities finding his body, that was always the question: Is well, how did he leave Defiance, Iowa? You know, if his truck is still parked in his driveway. Uh, so right,
0: right. Well, for listeners, the your benefit, go get the book. I mean, it's this case has so many bizarros, as we call it, in it, and it's called Dixie's Last Stand, and you can get it at WildBluePress.com. And then the second book that you've done for Wild Blue Press, Body of Proof, which um, covers the Jessica O'Grady case in Omaha, Nebraska. Um, again, would you give us a little background on the case? I understand she is still missing, her remains are still missing, um, but there's been a, a trial, a conviction, and all kind of other things that have gone on since then. So. Go ahead and give us a little background on on Jessica's case.
1: Yeah, so Jessica Grady uh, was a um, pretty, uh, very nice and sweet, uh, 19-year-old um, college student that went to the University of Nebraska at the uh, at the at the Omaha campus. And uh, you know, and Jessica had uh, she was working at a at a Lone Star Steakhouse around the time of uh, May. Of 2006, so about a little over nine years ago, she was 19 years old at the time, um, nearing her 20th birthday, and uh, and she got uh, um, she she had met a, an acquaintance that worked with her uh, at the at the restaurant, named uh, Christopher Edwards, and um, and uh, Christopher Edwards was, I would say, and it's a fair assessment, a, a dark and evil soul. And um, Chris Edwards already had a relationship with a, with, a, with a steady girlfriend who had also worked there. Um, her name was Michelle. And, um, and uh, so Chris and Michelle had a, had a relationship. Michelle was pregnant with Chris, and Chris started to pursue a secret relationship with Jessica Grady behind Michelle's back. So essentially this is, uh, um, unfortunately, one of those love tri- triangles Cases um, and uh, and again, I, I think Jessica probably was naive and didn't realize, uh, um, you know what, you know where things were going to lead um, with Chris Edwards and uh, how dark he was. And uh, what's going to happen is Jessica's going to go visit Chris um, at his uh, at the residence he lives at his aunt's house. She's going to go there on uh, on the night of May tenth, two thousand six she tells her friends her roommates uh, she was leaving that night around 11 p.m. to go visit Chris and that's the last anybody ever sees of her ever ever again
0: wow and so you say that this Chris Chris Edwards was a very dark dark soul what what kind of evidence was presented to corroborate that I mean did he did he have something in his background or in his history that he was just a bad guy or was this kind of coming out as he was having these relationships?
1: I think it was more coming out as he had these relationships because by and large, again, he was only nineteen years old, so he he, he really had no criminal record other than, you know, traffic offenses and traffic violations. But uh but as uh, I thought the Douglas County Sheriff's Office and the Omaha Police Department which had investigated this case it did uh, a pretty stellar job getting to the bottom of the facts of the case uh, in a pretty quick uh, manner and fashion. Um, and, um, and, and here's some of the things, just for listeners, you know, that, that, that they were able to uncover. Very important stuff, I think. It's small stuff, but you've got to give them tip your hat to them for doing this. Um, early in the case, they were able to figure out uh, um, that uh, um, just by going through some garbage, uh, they found a receipt um, from a Walgreens, um, a Walgreens department store, and um, and and this, and this receipt was for basically whiteout, you know, cleaning, you know, um, um, you know, cleaner, um, you know, that you use to um, paint over stuff. So they found that receipt, and they went back to the Walmart store, and sure enough, there was a video video surveillance showed Christopher Edwards the night after De- Jessica disappeared, you know, less than 24 hours later, Chris Edwards went to the Walgreens store not far from his house and he bought three of these small cans uh, or, you know, plastic bottles of different kinds of um, white, white out cleaning fluid. And uh, that's significant because Chris's bedroom, um, again, he lived in the basement um, and um on the ceiling of his uh, bedroom, there had been a lot of blood spatter that uh, that uh, had sprayed onto his ceiling and other parts of his room, including uh, um, the headboard of his bed. But the ceiling apparently had significant blood spatter on it, and and when the authorities searched the house, they found that there had been a significant amount of uh, of this um, of this uh, whiteout material this correction fluid that had been used to paint over the top of the ceiling of his house. So those are the kinds of things he was doing after the fact to conceal the crime scene and, uh, and uh, make his room appear as normal as possible. Um, another thing that the, that the authorities did was when they, when they took Chris's laptop um, into uh, um, into custody during the search warrant process, they found that uh, about a day about a day or so before Jessica disappeared, Chris had um, had used his computer to do a a Google search and he he looked up, he he searched for the word arteries and he came up with a a diagram of the human body. So the authorities were able to present convincing evidence that, that he was actively searching you know, on the internet, to find which veins or arteries, you know, in the human body, uh, would be uh, um, most likely uh, be vulnerable. You know, you know, for for right. somebody. So those kinds of things. Those Google is, is searches. you get doing. them
0: every time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People don't, yeah. You know, they don't understand that there's they're there. I mean, forensic uh, forensics mm-hmm. can pull all of that up, even if you delete it. So and right. it seems like in a lot of cases like this, that's, that's kind of what gets them is, is their computer searches.
1: Right. So you had the timing of this. Uh, that's very important. So so a day before Jessica turns up missing, you had Chris Edwards going on his computer, you know, searching for, you know, an anatomy of the human body. Um, Jessica disappears. And what is what happens the very next day? Again, she's already, clearly Edwards had hauled her out of his house by the time he went to the Walgreens at seven o'clock at seven p m or so on the night of um, May eleventh, okay, but but he's actively taking measures to uh, to to conceal the crime scene. and one of those measures was going to the Walgreens and uh, buying up all this uh, uh, cle- um, cleaning fluid um, to paint over his ceiling. To make it look like nothing had ever happened, but the one thing—and this is what people always point out—that you know, the Kevin Sullivans of the world, and in the you know, in the cops, um, and, and even you no know, body murder experts like, um, uh, and I always say his name differently, but uh, I always pronounce it Ted Dibiase. But you say it differently, right, uh, Delilah? <laughs> Tobias. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, I think Tobias. I right. Think he's, yeah. Yeah.
0: Tobias. Tobias.
1: Yeah. Right. Is, but
0: is, yeah who's known as the no body guy and has right told, i'll just call oh
1: him i right thing. And, <laughs> right and uh but 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 they point out that oftentimes yeah you know, these yeah you know, these, these individuals slip up and and make careless mistakes even if they think that they're so smart and, and so much um more intelligent than the cops that are investigating the case that's usually often not the case and in this case Edwards um, oh, about a week into the case so Jessica's already been missing for a week and her, her, her poor distraught family was doing everything they could to get a, to get her case in, in the news media to help organize searches uh, because nobody knew where she was at um, but on the other hand a lot of people her friends knew that she was going to see Chris Edwards the night she disappeared and when one of her friends had also talked with her on the phone too that night so uh, so you know, attention was turning to him, and he wasn't doing anything, absolutely nothing mm-hmm. to help organize any searches or, or even, you know, show any amount of interest in finding her. So that was a big red flag, I think, to the law enforcement. Yeah. So, so to the Omaha Police Department's credit, when they eventually go into his house, um, his aunt gave permission for, for them to be there, but uh, but the officers go downstairs into the basement, and they're looking around the bed the bedding material and they eventually find that that Chris Edwards had flipped the mattress upside down and uh and the bottom of the mattress was just drenched, saturated with, with, with blood, human you know, human blood on it. So that was Chris Edwards' method of, of dealing with this uh this uh his 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 situation, his predicament was to flip the mattress over. And uh, and so the mattress pretty much is the key piece of evidence that you know that showed even though this nobody knew where Jessica O'Grady's body was, it was it, it was pretty evident that she met her death mm-hmm. in uh, in the basement of uh, Chris Edwards'
0: house that he lived at then. And did did he plead guilty or did he plead innocent?
1: He um no he ple- he pled. Uh, not guilty and uh, Not guilty. and it's interesting yeah it's interesting too, because uh, his family had initially hired uh, arguably um, Omaha's most famous lawyer. His name was James Martin Davis, and James Martin Davis, I would say, is a lot like Donald Trump. I mean he', he's, uh, he he's just he's really flashy and, and just kind of always out to the limelight and, and loves the media attention, the spotlight. So James Martin Davis had taken on Chris Edwards' case before Chris Edwards was even charged with the murder. And and James Martin Davis was in the process of working out a plea deal for his client to get Chris Edwards to plead guilty. Uh, and the authorities wanted, in exchange for that, they wanted Chris Edwards to lead them to the body. And what's going to happen is Chris Edwards' father is going to step in and ultimately fire James Martin Davis as the lawyer. And uh, the father wants no part of that, um, no part of a plea deal. And the father uh, was of this, I would say, um, goofy belief that just because they didn't have the body of Jessica Grady, that his son was going to be found innocent at trial. Mm. And uh, and James Martin Davis told me for the book, and I interviewed him extensively, Delilah, but he, he said that was the opposite. He felt that Jessica's body hadn't been found would 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 make no difference at all to the jury. In fact, in this case, it would it would it would it would hurt Chris Edwards even more, you know, rather than uh, than help mm-hmm. him. Because uh, as Davis said, the jury juries are smart, and they're usually able to connect the dots. if they're able to connect the dots on their own. You know, that's when you're really your client is really in trouble. So, so Davis had had put together a plea bargain. You know, uh, he had an uh, an understanding. With one of the prosecutors, but that deal collapsed and uh, and uh, well, do never you feel, went anywhere.
0: Do you do you feel like if Chris Edwards' father hadn't stepped in, do you think Chris on his own would have taken the deal and and given up where the body is? I think
1: that the, I think there's a strong possibility of that. Uh, um, um, I think that what happened was his father was very overbearing. And uh, and, mm-hmm. and I think that uh yeah, I think that there's a good chance that uh um that if, if Chris was isolated and had uh you know, taken his attorney's advice that uh that, that he may have looked at his situation and realized he could have ultimately got out of prison after serving about ten years. He would have been convicted of manslaughter, um which carries us up to a twenty year sentence in Nebraska, but with good behavior time he would have only had to serve about ten years in prison, so he was nineteen at the time this happened that would have put him at about twenty nine you know twenty nine to thirty years old then uh, is when when he would have got out of prison so if he would have looked at it that way um, it would have been a better uh, better deal for him and 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 it would have also gotten the family and the community some some closure and healing as well because uh, the family and friends of Jessica wanted to give her a proper and fitting burial. And, uh, and, and Edwards, by keeping this a secret, has always been able to have power over the family because he's controlled, you know, the facts of the case. And and even to this day, even as he's still in prison, you know, they, they don't have the the, the closure and they're still always wondering, you know, what happened to Jessica, where is she at? And, uh, and, and he would be the, Obvious person that would know the answer to that uh, that question,
0: well, and I'm assuming that over the years they've conducted searches and uh, you know, I mean, I know how this family feels it's working in the missing persons arena myself, and they almost to the point where they don't care about justice, just tell me where they are. That's the biggest thing for these families, and I'm sure the O'Gradys fall right into that they they're more interested in finding the resolution to the case rather than complete justice is is kind of the afterthought and um, what have what have you interviewed the family and have they been able to give you any insight into um, what they think may have happened where they think he may have um, taken her
1: i i I had to actually go different routes on that, uh, uh, to be honest, Delilah, um, in, in this case, I reached out to, uh, to one of Jessica's, uh, uh relatives, uh, um, a relative that really had kind of been kind of at the forefront of the case, um, 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 that as far as, you know, kind of a media spokesperson for the family. And, uh, I mean, I wrote them, I, I wrote her, uh, you know, uh, nice letter several months ago, you know, explaining I was working on this book and that I wanted to include, you know, the family's perspective and comments within the book. And, uh, you know, and even put, I think, six or seven of my questions in there and uh, to let her know. And I did receive a response back, but it was not what I had expected. And it was along the lines of, um, you know, know, I received your letter, um, but I have to ask you, being me. John, um, you know who did you reach out to for this book? You know Jessica's family or Chris Edwards' family? And and I wrote back and mm-hmm. I explained that no, I've written to both. Um, you know, obviously I've contacted. I'm reaching out to you, you know, as uh, as as you know as Jessica's relative. But but I also when I write true crime books, um, when I write books in general, yeah, I reach out to, you know, the the person that, uh, you know, that committed the crime as well. And in this case, Chris Edwards. And, and I point out I did not expect Chris Edwards to write me back or respond to me for the book, and I was correct on that, but that was the end of it. I didn't hear back from the family until the until the book came out. So I, it's just one of those things that everybody has their own perspective, and I'm, it, it, my hunch is that somehow the fact that I you know, was even reaching out to try to interview Chris Edwards uh, for the book must have uh, um, you know, angered you know, this, this, this family member then. And, uh, um, but nonetheless, yeah, I, I went It's kind of hard to
0: understand. I mean, they're in a position that it's very difficult to understand when someone is kind of poking around in that area. And I can understand that it, they feel like, well, whose side are you on? Are you on right. our side or are you on his side? And, and it's difficult for them to process that you're trying to do the best you can to portray their loved one. Um, and maybe even help in the case. I know there's, you know, several true crime writers who have been able to further investigations and and change the outcome of a lot of cases. Well, and that's true. And and that
1: was that. Frankly, still is one of my hopes with this. Uh, um, uh, I'm I'm not uh, ashamed to point out that that you know, Chris Edwards, you know, the killer in this case. I mean, uh, he's treated as. I would say it's dirt in this book because that's the way he was and treated Jessica and, and how he behaved in the aftermath by keeping it a secret what he did with Jessica. So he's not uh, portrayed at all in a positive light. Um, and on the flip side, as I kind of end the book, I end my book with a challenge to Chris Edwards to, uh, to, um, think about his own child, um, his own child that he had had with the, with that other girlfriend of his uh, around the time of uh, around the time of uh, um, his trial, but um, but I, I I challenge Chris Edwards that if he ever reads my book that he should think of his own family and uh, and do the right thing, which is give Jessica Grady and her family you know um, closure and give them a chance to heal by releasing you know where the you know where the body is that he should make an attempt to go to the authorities. Uh, um, offer offer to make a deal where he would serve another ten years. Um, I mean that he actually would have to stay ten more years in prison, but uh, but that he would give the, the family and the authorities closure and end this nightmare and mystery that they're all going through um, as far as not knowing where the where Jessica's body's at. So uh, um, so that's that's one of the things. And, and, and back to your earlier question, Delilah, as far as just kind of where do people think you know she, she may have been. Uh, I I interviewed uh this was a good interview I conducted too but a fellow named DJ Ginsburg, and he ran uh he helps organize it's a volunteer search and rescue group that uh that mm-hmm. does a lot with um all-terrain vehicles and they search a lot of fields and uh you know and uh and ponds and uh and streams and and really a, a I mean great humanitarian organization and they were affiliated with the Douglas County Sheriff's office and, and D.J. told me that I think they've done 47 or 48 searches, separate searches over the years, you know, to find to look for mm-hmm. Jessica, and they've never found her. Um, um, a lot of places that they checked were um, were a handful of the larger lakes that are around the Omaha area. Um, mm-hmm. At one point in time, they came across they came across mm-hmm. what looked like somebody was digging uh, by some trees near near one of the lakes. I think it was near Cunningham Lake is the name of the place. But uh but it, but as as DJ pointed out to me, it looked like somebody was starting the, to dig there and hit some roots. And uh in this area where this shallow digging was was in a really in a no man's land. It didn't make any sense for somebody to be out there digging. So his thought, um and again speculation, but I think it's it's legitimate uh speculation. It's based on reason. But his thought is that possibly Christopher Edwards may have gone out there, tried to dig, you know, tried to dig a hole and realized he wasn't strong enough um, and, or, you know, had hit, hit roots and abandoned, gave up on, 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 on putting jet trying to dig a hole to bury the body. Um, there's other theories that she may be in a pond or a stream or, you know, somewhere else in the area. I mean, there's a lot of subdivisions that have small, you know, small lakes. So that's been um, you know, discussed as a possibility, and I know some dive teams actually searched, searched one little um, subdivision lake, um, and uh, had no success. So there's that theory, um, and another theory, frankly, is that uh, that Chris Edwards wrapped her up that night, and um, and hauled her off and uh, and put her into a trash bin. Uh, actually, the CSI director that uh, that was responsible for uh, overseeing this, this murder investigation, and he's a troubled individual himself. He went to prison for, uh, for his conduct in two other murder cases that happened prior to Jessica Grady's case. But uh, nonetheless, I was able to interview him for this book. Uh, he's down in North Carolina nowadays. Uh, he got out of prison 2012. But, uh, but that's his theory, is that, uh, you know, that Edwards may have wrapped her up and uh, disposed of her in a in a in a commercial trash bin.
0: Well, was there ever any evidence um, when I say premeditation? Maybe he had a premeditated place picked out beforehand. Um, do you th- or do you think this was just kind of what they call a crime of passion? That he just kind of had to take care of things because here he is, he's got two women pregnant. I mean, right. the guy's under a lot of pressure, you know. So, he had to take care of something here, and do you feel like he just made that decision quickly, or do you think he thought it through, obviously, with the computer searches, he was thinking about it for a couple of days?
1: yeah, I think so i part of me thinks that that he would have been thinking it through. the question then becomes how 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 far how how deep how extensive did he Plan things through. Did he just plan things through to the murder, or did it also include which vehicle to use to dispose of Jessica, and 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 where to put her as well? Um, um, part of me thinks that that he would have thought those things through as well, um, Delilah, because. Yeah, well, why wouldn't he? And and there was, and there's no way that he was, as, as, as Tad had pointed out when I interviewed him, there was no way that, that any of these no body killers leave the body inside the house for very long. So, so Tad's you know, Tad's point is that, that in almost all these cases, in these no body murder cases, the killer disposes of the body within hours of actually committing the murder. They don't, you know, leave the body in the house for two days or three days. So, uh, um, so so under that, that theory, for your listeners, um, that would essentially mean that the murder probably happened some sometime early in the middle of the night, sometime after midnight, uh, could have been one, two in the morning or so. And, uh, and under that scenario, then, that would mean that Chris Edwards would have, you know, wrapped her up, somehow got her out of his bedroom and, uh, and put her into either his vehicle or her vehicle, since you got to remember, um, and this is often an I've forgotten about in this case but but jessica had 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 parked in his driveway so so her car is there as well and um so anyway, that means that Chris Edwards would have had to have driven out sometime in the middle of the night, he's carrying around a body and he's got to figure out where to dispose of that and do this without being caught or, or seen, and then get back to his own house you know and act like nothing happened so uh um yeah I mean living well, this
0: car. Wasn't her car found in a parking lot some ways away?
1: Correct. Um, it was found about, uh, what was it, uh, five or six days um, later. Um, it was found um, in, a, in a grocery store parking lot, a shopping mall uh, for a shop go. Co- uh, there was a shop co- over there, but a very busy intersection. And the thing is, is that you would literally across the road from where her car was found, um, is where Chris Edwards had worked at the Lone Star Steakhouse. So, uh, mm-hmm. so that's another trail of antique in, um, intrigue. As far as with the, it, it it seems it seems probable that uh, that 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 he most likely you know would have put her car there, placing it somewhere near where she had worked. And either gotten a ride from somebody else or or walked home. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the officials I in this in this case, Dave Culford, the CSI. I mean, he thought based since this was summertime, it was well, you know, or mid-May. It would have been nice weather. It would not have been that hard for Chris Edwards to walk home. You know, even though it was about four or five miles, but uh, but to walk home in the middle of the night. Um, would not have been that difficult so uh but yes jessica's right. car was found to her car was found there there was no um her keys were hidden i mean whoever um chris edwards t- took her keys you know and uh and same way with her wallet her contents uh um her clothing you know all that has, was, has never ever been found then also her cell phone too
0: Mm. Well, wow. I think one thing I I learned, and I think it was from Tad Tobias, was a lot of times in these cases, especially when it's premeditated, most often they're going to put the body in a place that they know, whether it's a place that they know of from childhood or a place that they know of um, that they had frequented. But they, they feel that that's a safe place. And some people get away with it and some people don't. But I think it's an interesting fact that he points out that he he knows what he did and he knows where she is. And it's, if somebody could kind of like pick his brain about where he feels is a great secret place, maybe we could find out. But I doubt that's going to happen. Um, right. Let, no, that's, that's true let's go into a little bit about the evidence that you know you were talking about earlier with the crime lab person and how because from my understanding what i've read is this is one of the things that that edwards is basing his appeal on is the fact that this guy was dirty and he was known to plant evidence and went to jail for it that's
1: yeah that's all correct and uh and and that's uh...
0: That that may be
1: also one of the reasons why he's still staying staying silent and uh, you know and also refused to be interviewed by me, thinking that uh, you know hey, you know if I could ride this out a little longer, maybe uh yeah, maybe things will change for for my predicament. But uh, um, but yeah, the situation was and again it, it didn't come out until years later. Um, but uh, but Dave Colford, the crime lab commander for the Douglas County Sheriff's Office. <laughs> In 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 2010, he went to prison in regards to uh, fabricating evidence, blood evidence, in two separate murder cases that had happened uh, in one of the neighboring counties near uh, near uh, near Omaha. And uh, and and I go into a lot of detail um, about that in Dave Kovitz's Fall from Grace in my first book, uh, which was Bloody Lies, a CSI Scandal in the Heartland. So, so this book, and this new book, in a lot of ways, uh, Body of Proof is, is, a, is a sequel to a lot of that story. But, uh, but the long and short of it is that, uh, yeah. So, Dave Colford, within about two to three weeks of working one of these other murder cases where he was planting blood evidence in that case to frame some people that he thought were guilty, he he becomes the, the he spearheads the investigation into Jessica Grady's murder a no-body murder case, which was very, very high profile and getting all kinds of attention throughout the Omaha community. I mean, there wasn't a day that was going by that there wasn't some update about, you know, searches for Jessica trying to find her or some new development in the case, such as when her car was found. Um, Dave Colford oversees the CSI investigation into this case. He takes it over after, after Jessica's, um, after the, the mattress was found inside of Chris Edwards' house. So he already has access to a lot of blood of of Jessica's um, at his crime lab. And it's in the days and weeks that follow up that, that COVID's conducting additional searches and additional investigations of uh, things such as Chris Edwards car going back inside Chris Edwards house, you know, after the CSI's and himself had already gone through the, the house before and in the car, Chris Edwards' car is one of the most interesting aspects of this this question about whether evidence was fabricated um, in order to secure Chris Edwards' arrest, you know, and ultimate murder conviction in this nobody case. Chris Edwards' car was taken into custody on that first night of the case, again when the when the mattress was found. Okay. One of Dave Colbitt's most proficient CSIs. A young man named Josh Connolly searched that car for about five to five and a half hours. Um, went through the car inside and out, took photos of the car. Um, Josh doesn't find doesn't find or notice any evidence, any blood, anything that points to you know to Jessica's his body being transported in Chris Edwards' car. The very next morning, Dave Colford asks a different CSI guy named Bill Koffels, to come out with him to research, to reprocess the car again. And, and not only that, he gives them specific instructions. He tells them, you know, let's concentrate on the trunk of the car. And within minutes, basically, they find large amount, uh, thumb length long, but they find a large amount of blood on the top part of the trunk um, in what's known as like a rubber gasket area. Kofford then crawls inside the trunk himself and he finds um, a, a pool of dried blood on the top part of the upper part of the trunk of the car. Now mind you, there's no blood that's found on any of the carpet. You know, there was no blood found on the tire that was in the trunk. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, there's there's a significant amount of blood that now um, appears in Chris Edwards' trunk when the day before one of COVID's better CSIs had spent five and a half hours in the same car and found no, no blood, you know, in the car. So, again, this mm-hmm. is all happening, Delilah, before nobody at this point in time knew that Dave Colford was 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 dirty or a shadowy figure. So at this point in time, everybody just presumes, well, Chris Edwards is a snake. You know, he, he put Jessica's body in the trunk, you know, and, and, and lo and behold, you know, some of Jessica's blood, you know, somehow got into the trunk of her car. So it's all making sense back in 2006. But when you look at the case years later, after COVID goes to prison, things such as that, you know, really become questionable. And actually, um, there was two other objects that were, uh, um, that become central to Chris Edwards' conviction that uh, that COVID had also uh, had a hand in, um, um, conducting the searches to to find these items, and one was a pair of head shears, a pair of wooden head shears, uh, garden shears, I should say, that were found in the back seat of the car. Um, Several days later, Colford's going to bring those back over to get them tested again, and there's going to be a tiny drop of blood basically found on one of the wooden handles of these objects. Um, And the murder weapon that's presented by the time the case goes to trial, is going to be a two-foot-long battle sword. It's called a Bangkok battle sword that you could buy, I guess, at karate stores and uh, sporting goods stores. Uh, and, uh, and this is going to be presented at trial as the murder weapon. COVID um, had engineered a search of Chris Edwards' house, a second search of the house, to go back and find this object um, around May 22nd or so of 2006. This, this object is found and it's stashed inside of a pair of uh, black uh, sheets, nylon sheets, and, uh, and then, lo and behold, it's going to languish in the crime lab for nine whole days before COVID is mm-hmm. going to order it to be tested uh, by one of his employees, and she's going to report that she finds just a microscopic um, trace of Jessica's blood on the very tip of that sword. Um, and so, you know, that kind of becomes, you know, the, uh, the smoking gun that the authorities needed to present, you know, here's our murder weapon that Chris Edwards used to, to kill Jessica Grady. But mind you. So it
0: was, oh, I'm sorry. Go, go ahead. ahead.
1: No, go ahead. Well, just well, say, I was
0: just going to ask you, was this evidence, was this part of the evidence that convicted Coffin in his trial?
1: No, actually, uh, um, what happened in his case, uh, the prosecutor used two separate murder cases out of uh, neighboring Cass County, Nebraska. And as he told me, he studied the Chris Edwards case, but he was preparing for, the, for Dave Colford's case to go to a trial for a jury trial. So he decided, as he told me, he, did, he thought it would be too confusing for a jury to have three separate murder c- cases where he suspected Colford of planting evidence in, and since this was, this was going to be in the local county, he used the two murder cases from Cass County, Nebraska. But he, as he told me, he strongly suspected that Colford had planted evidence in the trunk of the car and and, the, and also with the sword, that both of those objects just kind of fit Colford's profile of wanting to be the hero, wanting to save the day, you know, and in helping the prosecution and law enforcement um, arrest and convict um, somebody who he believed was a really guilty, you know, and uh, you know, awful murder suspect. So, uh, so the prosecutor intentionally um, did not bring in any of the Chris Edwards case into the trial. But nonetheless, that's become a big. This this aspect of the case has been a huge bone of contention over the last two to three years, as a as a new team of lawyers. Uh, representing Chris Edwards are trying to get a new trial for him by arguing that uh, you know that there was tainted evidence you know um, against that was used to arrest Chris Edwards and convict him, and therefore you know he should be given a new trial um, because this evidence was you know fabricated so um, that's still right well, you would
0: think that there would be an a lot of cases in that area that this guy worked on and uh, processed evidence for would be out for question as well i mean you know when you have misconduct of that nature you've you've got people very often people in in prisons for crimes they didn't commit based on the evidence that some you know dirty guy found
1: right that's true and the thing the thing about it was though too was that this was this was very awful publicity you know, for the law enforcement community more and more often, and even the forensic science community in Nebraska, which had a very stellar reputation up to this point in time. And they still do, you know, if you take COVID out of the equation, but, but there was a, there was a strong incentive on the part of the, the sheriff's office where COVID had worked and also the prosecutor's office, the Douglas County uh, attorney's office headed by uh, Don Klein. But there was a strong incentive for both of those Parties to kind of push the Dave COVID case aside, you know and move forward and not dwell on it for a whole host of reasons, one being is that they're already swamped and have enough cases, criminal cases as it is um and you know and and two, you know they just don't want to be retrying you know all these cases that Cofi had had his fingers involved in and stuff like that so so the only way that anybody is going to be able to overturn their, their conviction is to prove to the court that, uh, you know, that Dave Colford ac- actively worked on, you know, on, you know, defendant A's case. And and here's some of the key evidence that Dave Colford had cooked up or we suspect he cooked up, you know, and therefore put it before the judge to determine whether or not, uh, you know, that individual deserves a new trial. And, uh, and again, if this happened in different parts of the country, Delilah, um, I think this, if this had happened on the East coast or even in California, I think things would have ha- been handled a lot differently. I think that there would have probably been an outside internal or an, an outside independent investigation to determine how widespread Dave Copeland's misconduct was. Um, and, and I also think the judges would have been a lot more, uh, um, um, uh, what, what I want to say, uh, um, open to, uh, you know, to, to, to giving defendants the benefit of the doubt on those kinds of cases. But, uh, but this happened here in the heartland and, uh, you know, Nebraska is known for being, you know, pretty, uh, you know, pretty far right to the right, you know, politically. And, you know, just kind of throw the book at people that commit crimes. So uh, um, this was a really a rude awakening uh, for a lot of people that, uh, you know, that somebody in the law enforcement community typically, planting blood evidence you know in real you know real life murder cases and stuff like that right and, and you know it, it, it for also his own
0: plays, right and it, it plays into the fact that and and we see it not only on tv but even in real life where prosecutions of crimes now are all about the win. It's, it's not necessarily about presenting the truth, it's not necessarily about justice and, and true justice, it's about prosecuting and winning a conviction, and I think that's really, really hurting a lot of um, a lot of cases all across the country, you know, no matter where it is. There's people, there's way too many people spending time in jail, in prison, on death row that didn't do it, and you've got you Know prosecutorial misconduct running rampant because you got to win,
1: correct? And, 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 and in this case, uh, I mean, I have there's no reason for anybody to believe that there was prosecutorial misconduct at all in any of this stuff. It was, uh, basically, um, you know, they were they also knew that this was a high profile murder case, this was the first. Um, no-body murder case that, uh, that actually was successfully prosecuted at trial in Nebraska, um, as, as as Tad notes uh, in his documentation, you know, of no body murder cases around the country. So because of that, there was a lot of pressure on the prosecution back in 2007 not to screw the case up, you know, and not to lose. I mean, if they would have lost this case, I can imagine, you know, the re- I mean, they would have probably oh, yeah. been voted out of office. Yeah, I mean, this was the murder case that the whole community, you know, was watching, um, you know, and, and by and large, you know, the community had it pegged right, you know, that it was going into the trial. It seemed pretty, pretty convincing that Chris Edwards would be convicted or should be convicted of killing Jessica Grady, but nonetheless, there had never been a trial before. So, so nobody knew what to expect and nobody knew how a jury, you know, would react. Would they, would they take the defense's argument and say, Hey, there's no, autopsy you know there's no death certificate for jessica mm-hmm. brady so you should uh give chris edwards the benefit of the the doubt um but uh but again back in so the fact that you had the sword you know this thing was like uh i mean this thing really got the attention of the community i mean people to this day you say jessica brady in omaha and they're like oh that was the case with the sword so the sword is like two feet yeah. long and again at the time of the trial i mean it I mean, I could see why it made sense to the jury that, you know, that he may have killed her with this weapon. But as I point out in Body of Proof, you know, and I interviewed Erin Sims, who's a longtime crime lab manager for, for the Lincoln, Nebraska Police Department, which is the second largest city in the, in the state. But Erin's followed Colfit's case, you know, very carefully. And she actually had a, a small role as far as analyzing some of the evidence in this case. But, but I, I worked Erin's comments into, into my book. Where she's of the strong opinion that the, that that sword was not the real murder weapon, and that the blood that was found in Chris Edwards' trunk of his car also, you know, was uh, was uh, fabricated as well. And she goes into depth to explain why she, you know, she believes that way. Then so uh, so again, there's no doubt that-, that Chris Edwards, yeah, committed the murder, but. Uh, what was right. the real evidence that, that that you know what was the real murder weapon where is that now did he hide it did he bury it did he throw it away with the body why wouldn't he well, I and think he, most he probably the
0: question and the most important question is where is Jessica O'Grady's body i think you know nothing is ever going to be resolved until that that is found especially for her family and this is a good place to kind of wrap things up and why don't you tell listeners where they can get the whole story and body of proof and and your other books
1: thanks delilah yes uh um i mean there's two key two key locations one is uh body of proof i mean you can find it on on my website which is john ferrick f-e-r-a-k.com um i have all three of my books uh um, um, profile there, which is um, Bloody Lies, um, Dixie's Last Stand, and Body of Proof. And again, Body of Body of Proof is is kind of the sequel for Bloody Lies because the two cases uh, are really kind of chronicle the devious actions of, of Dave Colfitt, the former crime lab. You can also go to Wild Blue Press, uh, WildBluePress.com and uh you know that's also where i have an author page and uh my books are featured there as well and uh and again body of proof is available on kindle and uh and paperback and uh and also the audiobook came out for that as well and i know a lot of your listeners probably you know listened uh you know to books on audible and and again wild blue press you know has some some, some wonderful um audiobooks and uh and kevin pierce uh, is the narrator for the uh for for my most recent uh, audiobook which is yeah body of proof here then and i thought you did a really wonderful job so again johnferrick.com or wildbluepress.com is where you can find uh my books including body of proof
0: well once again john thanks so much for being on the show we always enjoy having you and and you know i i think we ought to do a show sometime about the life of an investigative journalist. That would make some good material. So everybody stay tuned next week. Um, Hopefully Donna Gore will be back with us. If not, then you're stuck with me again. So goodbye for now and we'll see you on the flip side.